0: As we talk about some of these issues this morning related to the theme of that hymn, that hymn is worth reading over its words again and meditating upon them. Uh, it's a beauty, beautiful juxtaposition of the need for us to completely surrender and give God all that we are, that he might rule in our hearts and minds. If you please take your Bibles, open them to John 17, where you'll find uh, the prayer that we are studying this morning. I believe it's on page 1073. Once again, we return to this incredibly rich chapter in John's Gospel, which records for us uh, the prayer of our dear Savior for those who have been given to him by his Father. I trust already that we have seen in our study what J.C. Ryle says about this chapter, and that is that we have We have no line to which or with which we can reach its depths. But we're trying. We're trying to reach something of the depth of these things for our encouragement and the building of our faith. To know that the same Savior who prays for his disciples in the passage that we're looking at uh, this morning, on that night before he gave himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for us, is now, even now, in heaven at God's right hand interceding faithfully for us without end. And so we rejoice in all that we are learning. I remind you that this chapter is divided into three sections. We're looking at it that way. The first section, verses 1 through 5, we see our Savior consumed with the glory of his Father, that he would be glorified in his work so that the Father would receive all glory and blessing. Verses 6 through 19, he prays for his own disciples. Those 11 who remain, he doesn't pray for Judas, you'll note, as we studied last time, but he prays for those who will remain, that God would keep them and preserve and protect them. And then in verses 20 through 26, he turns his attention to us and all who would believe because of their faithful witness, Again, we've already studied the first section, 1 through 5. We began last time to look at the second section in verses 6 through 19. And at that time, we looked at what commentators note are at least three great themes of this section, that is, verses 6 through 19. Preservation or their security and their safety. We looked at that last time. Separation from the world, that'll be our focus This morning, and then consecration to the Lord. Those last two really go together, but we're going to look at them separately. All of those who have been separated in God's providence and according to his will from the world are also separated unto or consecrated to the Lord. In that study of God's preserving grace in our lives, we noted that this is, I believe, the central theme of this prayer, I am thoroughly convinced that as you read the prayer as a whole, the central focus of our Savior is that God would keep his people in the midst of this fallen, broken, hostile world and from the evil one, as we saw again last time. You may remember, as we noted in that study, how important it was for Jesus to pray this prayer for his 11 disciples and for us as well. All of the disciples, save one, John, who wrote this gospel, all of the others died a martyr's death. And yet the Lord preserved them all despite their horrific deaths because he kept their souls safe and secure from all alarms. Matthew Henry rightly reminds us that this prayer is not with respect to their physical things or earthly things, but this prayer relates to spiritual blessings In heavenly places. He does not pray that they might be rich and great in the world, that they might have many possessions and great honor in this world, but that they might be kept from sin and furnished for their duty and then brought safely home to heaven. And so, with that as a background and a reminder, we're going to look at the next great theme of this section. The theme of our separation from the world. To that end, please stand as we hear once again this entire section, 6 through 19, to give us proper context. This, again, is the reading of God's holy word. Jesus saying this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Thus far the reading of God's word. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the field flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Father, would you bless now your word to us. We have heard it read, and now we will hear the preaching of your word. Give us conscionable hearing, we pray. Work among us by your spirit that we might understand these things to the glory of your name. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Perhaps some of you have seen it, like I have, in person. Uh, To this day, you can still walk into that very famous Bible Presbyterian Church in Collingswood, New Jersey. And you can see, written in fancy script across the large wall, directly behind the pulpit, words. It is there that these words can be seen constantly because they are right behind the pulpit. So as you look at the preacher, you will see the words... And it's a constant reminder of what the church wants you to know. Many of you know what those words are. Be ye separate. Be ye separate. Those words, of course, come from the passage read earlier in the New Testament reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. It's the passage that talks about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers of asking questions like, What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what partnership or fellowship has light with darkness? What accord or fellowship, again, is there between Christ and Belial or Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The passage from Leviticus echoes these words as well. In fact, the whole of the Old Testament, as God sets forth his purpose and plan to Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and Moses after him and David, was that God was calling a people out of the world separated unto him. They were to be distinct from the nations around them. They were not to follow in the paths of the nations to which the Lord our God was delivering them. Remember that language from Leviticus 20 If you do those things, walk as the nations to which I am, uh, what I am delivering, uh, you know, taking out so that you might inhabit their land. If you do what they do, the land will vomit you out of its mouth. The Lord has an interest in his people being separate. However, there seems to be a great deal of confusion about what this really means. Some have twisted it and warped it and made it to say things that the Lord himself never meant. I can say by personal testimony, Pastor Fisher can echo this as well. He knows more about this church because of his great-grandfather, I believe, who served in it. But I don't know the motivations of those who had those words put up there. I don't have the direct history. But I know they've interpreted those words very differently. In fact, in early days when we would meet together as pastors in this community... The pastor from that church was not allowed by his session to meet with pastors from the PCA or the OPC because they viewed us as being corrupted. And so they've taken the words which the Lord has spoken in this chapter, Second Corinthians 6, and made it say, in my opinion, something that I don't believe God ever intended. Well, what does it mean to be separated from the world then? It means, I think, what we're going to study this morning in this prayer, because Jesus actually prays this prayer for us, that we would be reminded that we would be in our living, in our whole lives, separate, distinct from the world. The word world, as you go through this, and I've in my Bible I've circled every place, it's at least 16 times in the ESV. It's probably closer to 19 times in other translations where you find the word world. So Jesus, in his mind, as he prays for his disciples, is very much focused on this idea of the world. And the world in the Bible, very simply, is Everything that exists in this fallen world that is opposed to God, everything that this world represents, that is in opposition to God, God's way of thinking, his revelation that he has given to us, everything that is opposed to it represents the world. It is one of the great enemies that we face along with Satan and our own hearts And so as we think about the world, we think about that which is opposed to God. And sometimes, especially in our day, that's very easy for us to see. Just turn on the news again and you'll hear opinions and positions that are clearly opposed to what God has revealed clearly in his word and to which he calls his people to live out. And so the world is the focus here of his prayer to be set apart or separated from it is from that root word of holiness to be sanctified, to be taken and put apart and put aside for a holy use. So there is a literal separation from the world, but it's the world that is as as it is opposed to God and for a holy use that God has purposed in our lives. Think of the end of that great passage in Ephesians 2, that we might do the works that God has prepared in advance that we should do. That's the separation unto holiness or holy living. And so to understand what it means to be ye separate is to understand this portion of Jesus' prayer and as I look at it, I understand that in this passage, there are at least three things that jump out to me as to what it means when we say that we are no longer a people who are of the world. You know that statement. We are people who are in the world. That means we live in the world. We haven't left the world. That's the only way we can be free from it but we haven't left it we're not we are in the world but we are no longer of the world of that philosophy of that way of life and that's what jesus prays for his disciples that they might know that and that they might be encouraged by it the first thing that i see in these verses and there are really three verses that talk about it is first verse 14 look with me at verse 14, Jesus says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This link between Jesus and his followers is so central to this prayer. As Jesus was sent into the world, so he sends his people into the world. As Jesus is not of this world, come down from heaven, so his people now, because of his work, are no longer of this world. And the first point here to note in this verse is the world is a place of great war and conflict. Now, it may be that the Lord is being very gracious to us as a church in pointing out this theme once again. In two consecutive weeks, last week we saw Pastor Fisher teaching through the pastoral epistles, noting at the verses at the end of 1 Timothy 1 where Paul says he reminds his son in the faith to wage the good warfare with faith and a good conscience. And then in the evening, of course, you remember Elder Castillo exhorted us from Ephesians 4 of this very same war which our Lord Jesus Christ has won as he ascended on high and led captivity captive. And he gave gifts to his church for the ongoing battle that rages all around us, that threatens us, that threatens to toss us to and fro like a boat on a raging sea. And so both of them reminded us of this irreconcilable war, which the confession speaks so clearly of in chapter 13 on the subject of sanctification. As the divines were writing and considering all that the Bible says about our sanctification, which is a word that means separation or being made holy unto God. This is what they wrote, and it's very important for us to remember this. This sanctification, they write, is throughout the whole of the man, yet imperfect in this life. There abides still remnants of corruption in every part, whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh now lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. That's the reason for the war. It's because we now have the spirit of Christ. Notice what Jesus says in verse 14. It is because of the word that he has given to these disciples that the world hates them. It's the implantation, if you will, of the word of Christ within our very souls. That is the object of the world's hatred. And our confession says that it's the spirit, it's spirit and word together that now wrestles and fights this irreconcilable war against the flesh, in which war, they go on to say, although remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part, by the spirit and word, doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's a picture of the whole of our lives that from the moment of our regeneration, by the word and spirit, the spirit is working in us in this irreconcilable war. And moment by moment and day by day, gaining the victory over the world and over our remaining inward lusts and desires, so that we grow in conformity to Christ until that day where Christ comes and receives us unto himself and completes that work, and we are made fully and completely like him in the fear of God. The world, Jesus says, is a place of conflict and war, an irreconcilable war, as long as we have life and breath he said to this this very thing to the disciples to whom, for whom he's praying. Earlier in Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, verse 25, he tells them, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And then verse 25, If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? If they spoke in this way of Jesus, who is the head of the house, how much more to those who live within the house believers will they malign and mistreat? And then, earlier in John's own gospel in chapter 15, not long before this prayer was spoken before the disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. We stand in good company, brothers and sisters, and it is our great badge of honor, if you will, to be hated by the world as we seek to follow and obey Jesus Christ. It is often inconvenient, unpleasant, sometimes extremely painful and difficult, as we will often see loss of friends and loss of those in our lives that have no desire to follow after Christ. But it is for us an honor to follow the one who has led the way for us, to walk in the path that he has walked, to be hated for his name's sake. This is the teaching of the Bible. This is the prayer of your Savior for you, that you might know that you will be hated because he was hated first, that the world in which you now live is a place of war because he has implanted, put within you, his word and spirit, and those are contrary to the world in which you live, in which I live as well this is so, I believe, that the believer who is seeking to follow Christ can never ever really feel at home in this world. We can never feel at home in this world. You know that great mattress that you bought perhaps not so long ago that you sleep so peacefully on now, that you share with others you're so much at rest and at peace? That is not true of those, those of us who seek to follow Christ who live in this world. It's not like that mattress. It's more like the princess and the pea, if you remember that story. Surely the children do. Mattress upon mattress piled up, and there was one pea that was the very bottom, and this princess was so sensitive to that one pea that she could never, ever be comfortable. That's more what it is like for us who live in this world, but there's more than just a pea under it all. There is everything that the world stands for in opposition to God. It is a place of war. And Jesus prays for his disciples that they might know this. And in knowing it, that they would know that this world is not their home. And they can never be at peace or comfort here. And that leads me to the second point, which is that the world, this world, is not our home. It is not our home. That's seen especially in verse 16. They are not any longer of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 16 tells us Jesus is not of this world. He came, took on our human flesh, came from the Father as the eternal Son of God, laid aside his glory so that he might come in humiliation to do the work which God the Father had given him to do. He was never at home in this world. He would not entrust himself to men, he says, because he knew what was in the hearts of men. He had no place to lay his head, uh, no place to rest, if you will. He was never at home in this world. And so he says of his followers that this world is no longer their home, though it once was. And for those of us who were converted later in life, like myself at age 19, that transition from living in the world, feeling comfortable in the world, feeling very much at peace, is quite shocking in the very beginning, isn't it? We, we suddenly realize that the things we felt very comfortable doing or thinking or saying... Now seems strange to us, and we have no longer a desire to to walk in those things. There's nothing now but discomfort in those things. Because home, after all, is the place where we ought to feel most comfortable, most satisfied, most at ease. The place we say where we can be ourselves, that we feel as if we truly belong. Because of the work of God's grace in us, redeeming us and calling us to himself, he has changed our address. The world is no longer our home. It is the place we live, but it is no longer our home. Jesus reminded his disciples of this in John 14, again shortly before these words were spoken. "'Let not your hearts be troubled,' he said believe in god and believe also in me in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so i would have told you that i go to, but i but i go to prepare a place for you and if i go and prepare a place for you i will come again and will take you to myself that where i am you may be also shorthand wherever jesus is is our home Wherever Jesus is, is our true home, and he is now in heaven, and in heaven he is preparing a place for us, a home for us, that we might live there with him forever. Those of you who love Pilgrim's Progress, as I do, who find great value in all of its story of the progress of Christian throughout this life— will no doubt remember the beautiful illustration of this idea when pilgrim, uh, Christian, and faithful are emerging from the wilderness in which the Lord had led them both, and they're coming out of it with great joy, looking forward to the journey that still lays ahead of them. And as they turn around, they see their very familiar and loved friend evangelist once again. As Evangelist comes, they are excited to see him, and they ask him for some encouragement about what the rest of the journey will be. Listen to Evangelist as he speaks both to Christian and faithful. My sons, he said, you have heard in the word of truth of the gospel that you must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of heaven, and again that in every city bonds and afflictions abide you, And therefore you cannot expect that you should go long on your pilgrimage without them in some sort or another. You have found something of this truth of the testimonies upon you already, and more will immediately follow. For now, as you see, you are almost out of this wilderness, and therefore you will soon come into a town that you will by and by see before you. And in that town you will be hardly beset with enemies. Who will strain hard, but they will kill you. And be sure that one or both of you must seal the testimony which you hold with blood. But be you faithful unto death, and the king will give you a crown of life. Now, if you know the story, you know the town of which he is speaking. It is called Vanity Fair. And a little bit later, he gives them this history of this town. Now, Vanity Fair, please know, represents this world the world in which we live day by day. He writes this, or he speaks this to them of its history. Almost 5,000 years ago, there were pilgrims walking to the celestial city, as these two honest persons are. Now, those pilgrims most likely represent Adam and Eve. And Beelzebub, Apollyon, and Legion, with their companions, perceiving by the path that the pilgrims made, that their way to the city lay through this town of vanity, they contrived here to set up a fair, a fair wherein should be sold all sorts of vanity and that it should last all the year long. Therefore, at this fair are all such merchandise sold as houses, lands, trades, and places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts as harlots, wives, husbands, children, children, Masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and what not. And moreover, at this fair, there is at all times to be seen jugglings and cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, and rogues, and that of every kind. Here are to be seen, too, and that for nothing, thefts. Murders, adulteries, false swears, and that of a blood red color. That is a creative description of the world in which we live. It's a fairly thorough description of the world in which we live. But for their comfort, and you can't miss this in Bunyan as he writes, he speaks of another part of the history when he says this to them, The prince of princes himself, when here, went through this town to his own country, and that upon a fair day too. Yea, and as I think it was Beelzebub, the chief lord of this fair, that invited him to buy of his vanities, yea, would have made him lord of the fair, would he but have done him reverence as he went through the town." Yea, because he was such a person of honor, Beelzebub had laid, had him from street to street and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a little time that he might, if possible, allure that blessed one to cheapen and buy some of his vanities. But he had no mind to the merchandise and therefore left the town without laying out so much as one farthing upon these vanities." That speaks, of course, of Jesus, who came in the fullness of time into this world, but paid it no attention because it was not his home. He came to do his work. He would not be tempted by Satan when he took him into the wilderness, and he succeeded in accomplishing all that the Father had given him to do. As he walked as a stranger and a pilgrim and an alien in this world, so his followers now, united to him by faith, by grace and through faith, walk as strangers and pilgrims and aliens in this world. We see Vanity Fair for what it is. We see all its trinkets, all of its toys, all of its pleasures. We know what they are. Many of us have experienced them firsthand. But we reject them all because we have a greater and more glorious future and an inheritance in heaven which cannot be taken away. This is the picture, Jesus says, of the world in which we live. And Jesus simply tells us we are not of the world. We're no longer of this world, but we have a new home. You read through Paul and Peter, you read through John, you read through Revelation, and you see the language of strangers and pilgrims and aliens. It's because of this truth for which Jesus prays that we would remember that we are such and that this is not our true home. Brothers and sisters, this is not your home if you believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has gone to prepare a home for you. And this is the world, and we are just simply passing through. Thirdly, then, it is a world that Jesus says, according to verse 18, is one into which we are sent. Now, this is something that's very important. Look again at verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The Christian life, again, follows the pattern of our Savior. He was sent by the Father into the world, and so he sends us as his followers into the world. He sent Jesus, the Father did, to redeem a people that the Father had given to Him. We are sent, not to redeem anyone, but to proclaim the redemption that Christ has accomplished for all of those who would trust in Him, to proclaim the work of Jesus Christ. That is what we are sent to do. It's the word missionary, it's the word witness. It's the word that speaks of what our purpose is in this world, which is not our home. We bear witness of what Christ has accomplished, and we declare it boldly to all who will hear. I love what Luther, and I came across this this week, said in this way. He said, there's a normal pattern, he says, for Christian behavior. The person who is converted out of the world, and this is so true of my own uh, life experience and testimony the one who is converted out of the world spends his first days as a Christian in a tendency to completely withdraw from the world. As Paul went to Arabia, for example, or we might have a desire to be so far removed from the stains and pollution of this world that we become almost monastic in our thinking. And the early church did that. It had people who who literally did that, who left everything, moved into the desert, and lived there the rest of their lives because they thought that's what it meant to be separated from the world, withdrawing, stepping out of the world altogether. But Luther said that a Christian does not reach maturity until he re-enters the world and embraces the world again, not in its worldliness and its ungodly patterns, but as the theater and arena of God's redemption. That's what Jesus did. He went into the world in order to save the world. This world is the world that God has committed himself to renew and redeem And we are called to participate in that with him. I think Luther's right. The the point of maturity for the Christian is when they realize that we are not called to be separate in that we have no contact with the world at all, but denying and turning away from its worldliness and ungodly patterns nonetheless enter fully into the world to bear witness of what God has done in Jesus Christ. We are witnesses of Christ and his kingdom into this world, that we might see many come to faith in him and come, as we do, to have a new address, a new home in heaven. Well, those are the three things as we look at these three verses, which I think primarily focus on this idea of separation from the world. So as we close out our study this morning, I think it's helpful to remind us of what all of this means practically. Great, Pastor, you said I'm in the world, but I'm not of it. What does that look like to me? What does that look like as I live my life from day to day? There are two places I can point you to that will help you understand and me to know what this actually looks like to really be in the world, but not any longer of the world. And the first, of course, both appeared in our service earlier, is in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the passage we use this morning in responding to God's mercies to us. And notice that it speaks to the act of the believer by the grace of God, something that he says is our reasonable act of worship. It's a reasonable response to all the mercies of God that you and I would offer ourselves first as living sacrifices to him. It's the ordinary Christian life. That's what we ordinarily do in response to his mercies. But then he adds this idea of not being conformed to the world but rather transformed by the renewal of our minds. One writer puts it this way, the prefix con, conformed, means with. And so to conform to the world means literally to be with the world. That's one of the strongest drives and temptations that we have as Christians. Nobody wants to appear to be out of it. We want to be with it. That's an old phrase. We want to be up-to-date. We want to fit in. And we're often engulfed by peer pressure that wants us to to imitate and participate in all the structures and styles of this world. The Bible says we are not to be conformed then to the patterns of this world. Now, when we hear that as Christians... We so often think that all that we have to do is to become obvious nonconformists. So if the world, this is their illustration, if the world wears buttons and bows, we don't wear buttons and bows. If the world wears lipstick, we don't wear lipstick. We try to show ways in which we are different from the world. But that's not what the Bible is talking about. It's not just a matter of being different from the world. We are to go beyond nonconformity to transformation. That fits with everything the scripture tells us of being salt and light to the world. Something that is transformed is something that has been changed. The prefix trans means above and beyond. We are to be above and beyond the standards of the world not in the sense that we are to elevate ourselves in some lofty privileged status above everybody else, but that we are called to a more excellent way of life. And all of this, according to Romans 12, is so that we would be able to discern what the will of God is. In the simplest way, the Bible is telling us something very important about discerning the will of God. Have you ever wanted to know what the will of God is for your life? Ever once? Of course you have. And so have I. The bottom line is this. If you are being conformed, then you, if you are being more conformed than you are being transformed, you will have a very difficult time tran- or discerning God's will for your life. Let me say that again because I confused it. If you are being more conformed to this world than you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind, you will have a very difficult, if not impossible, time of discerning what God's will is for your life. And that makes sense. That makes sense. Of course we would. Our minds are consumed with the things of this world. They're shut off from the things of God. How can we possibly rightly discern what is that good, acceptable will of God for our lives? Another writer gave this question. I think it's very fitting here. Is the world around me different because I am in the world? Or am I different because too much of the world is in me? is the world around me different because I am in the world as a transformed creature by the grace of God? Or am I different because too much of the world is in me, thereby having no effect upon the world around me, those closest, those furthest from me? Second passage, I think, beyond this one that is very helpful And helping us to think very practically about what Jesus is praying is in Colossians 3. If then, Paul writes, you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Some versions have set your hearts. Other versions, I like this, set your affections on things that are above. This is what it means to no longer be a people of this world. It reaches to the things that we spend our time thinking about, the things we spend our time dreaming about. The things we spend our time seeking and looking at to find satisfaction in this life. Set your affections on things that are above, not on things on the earth. You have to focus on the fact that heaven is now your home. That's where your citizenship is. Your father is there. Your savior is there. The redeemed and glorified saints are there. The church triumphant is there. Your inheritance, which is incorruptible, is there. Your reward is there. And the home is being prepared for you there. I've really enjoyed our Wednesday night studies in the book of Ecclesiastes. As we've worked through this book for several months, we have come to understand what the preacher says at the very beginning of that study As he writes in chapter one, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is never satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The whole point of a book of Ecclesiastes is not to depress us, but to show us what the world is like under the sun, apart from God. It is all vanity. And brother and sister in Christ, you will never find your satisfaction in this world. It can't satisfy you. It's all vanity. It's like grasping at the wind. You can't hold and capture the wind. It is something which is ethereal, which passes through our fingers like sand through the fingers of our hands satisfaction and joy will never be found in this world it's not meant to be for the believer there is an illusion of it for unbelievers they think they have found all that they want in this world and yet their hearts are longing for something more something more real and you and I as followers of Jesus Christ have come to understand what that is which means the world for us is a place of war and conflict The world for us is no longer our home, and the world for us is a place that we are sent as ambassadors to proclaim the finished work of Jesus Christ for all who would believe. Next time we're together, we're going to continue this theme because sanctification or consecration is very much related to what we've talked about this morning. But we're going to look specifically at verse 17, which I think is one of the central verses. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Until then, may I suggest that you make it your constant prayer. What the psalmist prayed as he considered these things and as we travel together on this road to the celestial city, our heavenly home, what Psalm 119 says in verses 35 through 37. May this be your prayer. O gracious Father, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things, and give me life in your ways. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, our hearts are too easily satisfied with lesser things, the things of this world which can never be our home. And so we would pray that you would, in hearing the prayer of your Son, our Savior for us, that we too would know more and more that this world is not our home, that we really are passing through to our heavenly eternal home, And that he has promised to give us grace in the midst of this irreconcilable war. And he has promised to give us grace that we might boldly proclaim the wonders of our Savior and of his salvation. Grant us that grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.